If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to turn with me in them to Matthew chapter 4. We're going to begin in verse 12 and read through verse 22. I believe there's actually, it's printed on an insert in your bulletin. We want to encourage you to follow along as we consider God's Word this morning. It's good to be with you this morning once again. As Matthew said, my name is John Dunning. I work with our denomination's campus ministry, which is called RUF, or Reform University Fellowship, on the campus of Kansas State University. It's my 10th year there, which kind of freaks me out, to be honest. But it doesn't freak me out as much as to realize that I have an 18-year-old daughter who's a freshman at K-State. Um, talk about worlds colliding and weird things happening. It's been great, but it's, it's kind of strange to be at the stage where my daughter is now amidst of my students. So it's, but it's been really God, good. God has been faithful to us. We're on the campus of Kansas State and about 150 campuses around the country because we believe in three things. We believe that the gospel is true that it's true in a way that God is shaping and changing us and analyzing us even when we think that we're the ones doing the analysis of Him. We also believe that the university is a very real place where real questions are being asked, where students are wrestling with what they believe, how they understand their world, and what they're going to do for the rest of their lives. And we also believe that God has given the church to be His primary means of reaching the lost and growing us all to be more like Jesus. And so that's why we're there. And it's a privilege. I'm, I'm grateful for your prayers for us. I can tell you stories after story about things happening that I can never explain. Um, students showing up to events that I'm still not sure how they found us, but they find us somehow, and they show up eager to come and get to know Jesus better and to grow together, and we're thankful for that. So thank you for that. As we turn our attention to Matthew chapter 4, um, you know we're still early enough in the year that most of us are probably still writing 2022 on stuff. Um, whether we whether we realize it or not, and we're looking at the year ahead, and we're wondering, is this going to be different? Is 2023 going to be different than 2022? Whatever that looks like for you, we're, we're looking at the beginning of the year. Some of us may be wired to to create to write down resolutions, or at least to think about how we want to live differently this year. And some of us may be realizing that different isn't really happening yet, and we're still trying to figure out exercise plans and and diets, and reading habits, and, and other things like that. Wherever you find yourself this morning, I want to turn our attention to, to the thought of what it looks like for us to begin the year with Jesus. To begin the year in such a way that, that we're looking to Him. And we're going to do that by looking at, at a portion early in His public ministry. In, in the Bible itself, we have four main accounts of His life on this earth. And, and most of those, three of the four accounts, they'll tell us something about what happens early, at least two of the accounts actually, will tell us about his birth. Matthew and Luke will tell us about his birth. And then jump ahead about 30 years to, to when he actually became this public figure. So as we turn our attention to Matthew chapter 4, that's where we're going to find him. Jesus has, has become a public figure, if you will. He's starting to be known. He's starting to preach and teach. And what we're going to see this morning, he's starting to call people to follow him and join him in his mission. Um, on this earth. So if you hear, hear now from the Word of God, if you follow along with me, Matthew chapter 4, I'll begin in verse 12 and read through verse 22. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. 
From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And while, while, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us as we consider these things together. Merciful, gracious God, I pray this morning that you would send out light and truth, your light and your truth into this place. That as we seek to know You through Your Word, You would bring us to the place where You are, to the place where You dwell, that we might behold You, that we might see You more clearly, and that we might be changed. Father, we bring our distractions to You. We bring our excitements. We bring our anxieties. We bring everything in between. And we ask that we would see the intersection between our our lives and Your Word this morning. And that we would walk away changed. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray all of this. Amen. I don't know if you're familiar with, if if many of you, I'm going to date myself on this a little bit. Uh, One of the Robin Hood movies that came out in the late 90s was called Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. It was Kevin Costner's telling of the story of, of the Robin Hood narrative. You know, it, it might, it was, at the time that it was released, it was well known because Costner had really struggled to, to talk with an English accent, and so he's got, you got this American accent and all these British accents around him. But what I love about this movie is, is the way that it sets up the narrative and the way that it tells us, and especially the way that it ends. If you're familiar with the Robin Hood story, you know that King Richard was away on the Crusades, battling for the glory of Britain and for his faith. And he went, while he's gone, his brother, Prince John, and the, and, and the Sheriff of Nottingham were ruling the land with corruption and injustice. They were robbing the people. They were amassing their own wealth and, and hurting everyone else around them. And so Robin of Loxley shows up after himself being been on the Crusades, shows up and realizes this is not what he left. This is not the way home, the home was that he remembered. And so he begins to fight the injustices. He and his merry men... And by the end of the movie, and it's old enough, so spoiler alerts, whatever. It's where we are, guys. Sorry if you missed it. Don't want to spoil it for you. It's still fun to watch. By the end of the movie, everything is the way that it should be, right? Robin Hood and his men were successful. And the last scene of the movie is Robin getting to marry the love of his life, the Maid Marian, and then this wedding ceremony. But there's this sense in which things aren't quite... We're still looking for something more. And in the midst of the wedding ceremony, everyone's, everything's beautiful, everything's perfect, the land is at peace. We hear this voice from off screen. And I remember sitting in the theater as, as a high school student realizing the voice was Sean Connery's Scottish brogue. We didn't know he was in the movie. And so by you know, the last scenes that we hear this voice, and then and he's King Richard, and the king has showed up to this place. And he blesses the wedding ceremony, and we realize now the movie can end. Because now the land is at peace. Because the king has returned to rule rightly, and to rule truly and with justice. You see, what we long for in those situations, when there is corruption, we're longing for something more than simply for the, for the bad guys to be, to be kicked out, for the bad guys to be defeated. We actually long for the land to live in peace, to be ruled with faithfulness and justice. 
Matthew in Matthew 4, in the passage I just read, wants us to know that our King indeed has come to rule with faithfulness and justice. In fact, as we look at the text, if you look at verse 17, it says that from this time forth Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Scholars believe that this is actually a summary statement given to us by Matthew and some of the other writers to tell us this is what Jesus was about. This is, this is the Sparknotes version of His sermons and of His teachings and what He came for. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The implication is that we know that the kingdom is here because the King Himself has showed up. It fits with what we've seen earlier in Matthew's Gospel, right? In Matthew chapter 2, when the wise men show up, the, the men traveling from the east who saw a star and in read in their prophecies about a king that would, was to be born, and they show up and they say, where is the king of the Jews? And King Herod, who thinks he's the king of the Jews, and all of Jerusalem are disturbed. But the king has come. Now what's interesting about the way Matthew tells this story and helps us understand what's happening is, Beginning in verse 12, it's, it's not immediately evident that this is what's happening. Because John, the one who is preparing the way for Jesus to come, has been arrested. And in response, we read that Jesus withdraws into Galilee. Now, now this is important for us because you have to know that if it's 2,000 years ago and you're wanting to start a political-slash-religious reformation, a movement to change everything... Galilee is not where you go. If you need a really simple comparison, I know there are exceptions to this rule, but if you want great seafood, you probably don't go to Kansas. I'm not trying to offend anybody. You come, we come here for barbecue and other great food, but probably not fresh seafood. We go to the coast to get fresh seafood. Similar kind of situation. For Jesus to go to Galilee is, is not to go to the center of religious life for the people of God. He would have needed to go to Jerusalem where the temple was where the priesthood was active and where all the people were. But Matthew says, but wait, it's not insignificant where he landed. If you, again, if you look with me back at our text, we read that in, in verse 13, he left Nazareth and he lived in Capernaum by the sea. But Matthew wants us to know where this place is. It, it, he tells us there it's the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. And then he does something great, because what he tells us is, he says, these places are not insignificant like we may think, because they're mentioned by the prophet Isaiah. And it, as, what, he, what he tells us is that, he tells us that this place has great significance because of where it is. Now, now the people here, we read in verses 15 and 16, knew the darkness of the shadow of death. They knew corruption, we're told. They knew injustice. They saw their own sins and others' sins firsthand. We relate to that, don't we? If we look with honest eyes at our families, our extended families, at the workplaces, at our neighborhoods, at the city around us, at the, at, the, at the state around us, at the country around us, at the world around us, we can't ignore the fact that the shadow of death is still present. That there are sinful, destruction, destructive patterns happening in us and all around us. That we cry out for mercy and for justice to win out. And what the pro Matthew wants us to connect Jesus going to Capernaum to Galilee with what had happened previously because of what, what this means for the people. Again, look at verses 15 and 16. These walking in darkness, dwelling in darkness, have seen what? They've seen a great light. On them a light has dawned. That in the midst of the, the shadow of death, in the midst of the darkness and corruption and injustice, 
There is indeed hope, and that hope is Jesus. The King has appeared to chase away the darkness, to defeat the enemy, even death. And the message that goes forth with the King's appearance is, is, could be summarized even in one word. That word is repent. You see, to, to call the people to repentance is nothing less than the authoritative declaration of the King who, want, who is here to rule over His land and to rule over His people. The King's call is this. Turn away from your sinfulness and from your self-righteous attempts to, your, to, to, live, to fix yourselves and to run your lives and return to your King. If the King is here, we are to run to Him. That is the message of repentance that is, called, that is here. One scholar defines, speaks of repentance this way. He says, what is new does not merely supplement the old, it replaces it. The divine word of repentance does not praise or strengthen what we are. Rather, it does away with the old and creates something new. You see, when we hear this word repent, it doesn't mean tweak your lifestyle. It doesn't mean, hey, try something new tomorrow and, and we'll see what happens. It doesn't mean you need a little bit of adjustment here and there in, in, in some of the things you do on a daily basis. What it means is it confronts us with our own desire to rule our own lives and says, you are not in charge. Your king is here. And the rightful response to him is to bow the knee before him. Not to fix yourself. Not to try to transform yourself, but, but to be transformed by his work in us. That is what he calls us to. This is his exercise of kingly authority. He's here to hold us together to keep our enemies at bay. And he calls us to repent. The rest of the passage, I want to look at it with, with this all in mind. That the king is here, and then he's calling you and I to repent. What do we hear in that call as he begins to, to, to call his followers? The first thing I want you to understand and, and see as we begin to look at this specific situation beginning in verse 18 is this. Jesus' call to his followers in that time and to us today is to himself. Notice how the scene opens in verse 18. It says that Jesus is walking by the Sea of Galilee and he sees two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen. They're casting a net. Why are they casting a net? Because they're fishermen. It would be as if, similar to if Jesus showed up in our lives and said, so-and-so was opening a spreadsheet, or so-and-so was checking out a job site, or so-and-so was stuck on a Zoom meeting for an hour and a half that they didn't want to be on. He, enters into, he, enters, he calls us from this place where we are. He calls to us in the very places where we are living our daily lives. We see it again in verse 21, don't we? And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. Why are they mending their nets? Because this is what fishermen do. They're simply doing the thing that they need to do to, make, to, 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 to provide for themselves and for their families. This is their, this is their lives. We, we see God doing this throughout Scripture. He calls to Moses... And David, while they were shepherding. He calls to Joseph, who was in jail. He calls to Samuel and Isaiah while they were serving in the place of worship. He calls to Gideon when he was sifting wheat and trying to hide from his enemies. Jesus calls to us where we are. I'm going to pause for a moment and consider that for a minute for us. 
Jesus finds us and speaks to us as human beings living in a very real world in which we find ourselves. With families, with jobs, with responsibilities. He speaks to us as kids. He speaks to us as parents. He speaks to us as sons and daughters, as employers, as employees, as neighbors. There's a great temptation for for many of us in our world to say, I need to go to this special magical place to meet with Jesus. Or, or, or to say, let me just wait until I got my life in order and, and then I'll consider my faith. Then I'll get back to church that I grew up in. But, but for a time, I need to not be there because I've got to figure the rest of this stuff out. And I certainly understand. I'm not trying to make light of the realities of some of our situations where, where we need to be careful with our time and we just don't have a lot of free time and, and things like that. But what I want you to understand is that Wherever we are, Jesus will find us there. And His call goes to us even in those places. His call finds us in the dailiness of our lives. He knows full well the world that we inhabit. He's not waiting for you to figure it out. He's saying, I know where you are. And I want to find you there. And I will find you there. But the other side of this is that, as I said, Jesus, when He calls us, He calls us to Himself. Look at verse 19 with me again. What does he say? It says, he says to them, this is speaking first of all to Simon and Andrew, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Now, now the command here is, is really pretty interesting. If, if we were to look at this in Greek and analyze the text a little bit more in depth, what we would find is that there actually isn't a verb there. There's not a, 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 in, in some ways we might say grammatically there's not a command there because he, there's no word for follow. What, what he simply says is here. He says, here is where I want you. And that, that matters because, because of what we see in Mark chapter 3, verse 13. When, when Mark is giving his account of Jesus gathering his disciples, we read this, that he does this so that they might be with him. When Jesus says follow, or Jesus says here, he, he means, I want you right here. I want you with me. Sometime later, Jesus will say, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The implication is that this call goes out even to us to follow Him. And to follow Him begins with being with Him. Whenever I'm with my... We have have three kids. As I said, my daughter's a freshman at K-State, but we have two sons at home still. And this fall we were at a football game. And and any time I'm in public with my boys, like I'm trying to like... My wife and I have this joke that I can't multitask and she can, which is real. Um, and some of you may find those same realities. And so, you know, if I'm at a sporting event, I'm trying to find my seat and trying to figure out where I'm going. My son's asking me a bunch of questions is not super helpful because I'm trying to figure out one thing and I can't do two things at once. And so what I say to my boys when we're in public, I'm like, I want you right here. Just stay with me. I'll answer your questions when we get to where we need to go. But I need to figure this out and I don't want to lose you. And that's what we do. I want them close so that they can, they can see what I, where I'm going and they don't lose sight of me and we get to where we're going together. That's what Jesus is after for us. What He's after for us is that we would be near Him, that we'd be with Him, so we might know Him, so we might hear Him. You see, Jesus' call to us is not first to a way of life. It, our faith is a way of life, but that's not the, the beginning point. The beginning point is not to a task. When Jesus calls out to us, His call to us is to be with Him. This is the Christian life. 
to be with Him in word, to be with Him in prayer, to be with Him in worship. Watch Him. Listen to Him. Ask Him the questions of your mind and your heart. Go with Him to the places where He goes. Spend time with the people who are also with Him. This is the Christian life, beloved. What do we do with this? How do we be with Him? In the most fundamental way, we're with Him because when we see Him through His Word. We can watch Him. We can listen to Him. We can understand how He responds to life situations because we have an authoritative record of that. And He promises to speak to us through this Word. Now hear me. I know that some of you are maybe like a week behind in your Bible reading plans for the year because that's what we do. We start the year and we think, I'm going to read through the Bible. This is going to be my year to read through the whole Bible. And that's awesome, and I want to encourage you to do that. But if you're already frustrated by that, I'm not trying to pile on your plate more to do or make you feel guilty. What I, what I want to say to you this morning is this. Like, it's okay to be crazy, crazy practical about this. And so if, if your life right now means you can do a paragraph a day or a paragraph a few days a week, go for it. Look to Jesus. Listen to Jesus. It may be for you, like showing up here once a week is a big thing. Keep working at that. This is how you will know Jesus. This is how you can hear Him. This is how you you can understand His ways in this world. This is how He will change us. His call is to wherever you are, to be with Him. Look at the text again. What else do we see? It flows right into kind of the next thing I want to say, and that's simply this. Jesus' call is also to, to us, is to one another. When Jesus' call goes out, we hear, we hear it coming out to other people as well. It's not just about me and, and my private little world here, but it's a call to us as a people. In part, this is means it's going to call, His call goes out to people who are like you, to people who are close to you. It's interesting in verses 20 and 22 that we're told very specifically who these men are, isn't it? that Simon and Andrew are brothers, and that James and John are brothers. There's something natural about this, that family members, co-workers, and others nearby, neighbors and such, would hear what we hear. And then we would find ourselves gathered with people who are like us, because we're living in the same place. I mean, as the Gospel, as the gospel goes forth after Jesus' resurrection in the book of Acts, we, we meet a man in Acts 10 named Cornelius. And that's what happens to him, his household is changed because of what happens in his life. Lydia in verse in chapter 16, the unnamed jailer in Acts chapter 16, and countless others, as the gospel message goes out, it impacts people around those who it's impacting most. And not just individuals are changed, but families are changed, and places of business are changed, and cities are changed because the gospel is going out. But it also changes those who are far. And what I mean by that is this. It, it's interesting to me, and, and I don't know much about first century economy, and so I'm going to acknowledge there's a little bit of speculation happening here. But it fascinates me that Jesus found a boat of fishermen, and then he found another one. And I can't help but wonder, were they competitors with one another? I mean, there's cer- certainly a limited number of fish in the lake, and uh, in the sea, and now it's a bigger sea, so that, I mean, there's plenty of fish probably, but I can't help but wonder if these guys are looking at each other. I wonder how much they caught today. Did they catch more than us or did they catch less than us? There has to be some sort of tension there in, the, in these relationships as these men were gathered around Jesus. 
Surely there's something to this. I mean, think about the other men that Jesus called to be His disciples. Matthew, also known by the name Levi, he was the guy that would have collected taxes from both of these boats of fishermen and, given, and lived wealthy off of it and given it to the Roman government. Their tax collector was also called to Jesus. Or another man named Simon, known as the Zealot, he would have been the guy that you don't want to invite to dinner because he wants to talk religion and politics all the time and be really obnoxious about it. And yet these, these men are all called to Jesus. You know, we have this habit uh, in the summers in, in Manhattan that, um, you know, our, our kids love the swimming pool. Like they would live there if we'd let them, you know, kind of thing. And, and our, ki- our boys are at the age where I can go and bring my work with me and so sit in the shade and read and not get sunburned and, you know, and think about things and make plans and all that good stuff and they can go off and swim. And often what we'll do is we'll put a text in, you know, one of our church, church text thread threads or on Facebook and we'll say, hey, Dunnings are going to the, the city pool this afternoon from three to six. Anyone wants to come on out, come on out and join us. When we're at the same, when we're at the pool, you know, so we're at the pool, they're at the pool, we're at the pool together. Really simple, but that's what's pictured here for us. What's pictured here for us is Jesus' call goes out to us as His people. And even as it comes to us individually, we realize that if, that if I'm drawn to Jesus and you're drawn to Jesus, Jesus is drawing us together. That He wants us to be together. And that's part of the deal. That's part of what it means to be a Christian, to live in community together. It's to be with Jesus and to be called to each other. There's two things I want you to see here as a result of this. One is this. I want you to celebrate your deep and lasting friendships within the church and work really hard to preserve those. Some of you have known each other for for decades. Don't make light of that. That's a gift. When Jesus draws you to people who are like you and you get each other, that is a gift of God's grace to you. When you can look in this room and say, you know what, we vacation similarly. Our families, our kids are at the same ages, or I'm not married and there's other people who are not married, or we don't have kids yet, and so we're able to, you know, we, we, get, we get one another. You may naturally gravitate towards some people in this room. That's not wrong. Celebrate the, the gift of relationship that you have and learn from one another and grow together. But at the same time, there are also people in this room that you don't understand. Like, I know how this works, right? I mean, there are people here that, that they raise their kids differently from you, they spend their money differently from you, they live differently from you, they eat differently from you. And, and you guys are mysteries to each other. You have no idea what, why, why they do what they do. Please don't make light of that either. And let me encourage you to seek to understand. You don't have to be best friends. That's not, that's not the point. But the point is, we are the church. You are gathered in the name of Jesus in this room, and y'all are a congregation gathered in the name of Jesus to, to know Him and to know one another. It will be awkward. You will put your foot in your mouth. I can guarantee it. I do it all the time. You will introduce yourself to the same people that have been coming here for six months. And like that'll be weird, and so we just need to we need to kind of acknowledge that. Like a regular thing that I do in our church um, is, you know, I regularly say, "I think we've met, but I'm sorry, I can't remember your name." And they're like, "Yes, we met three weeks ago, uh, but this is my name," and we go on from there. Like embrace that. Don't be afraid of that, because Jesus calls us to each other 
people who are like us and people who are not like us, people who are close to us and people who are far. One more thing that I want you to see big picture, and it's this. Jesus' call is to us where we are, to Himself. It's a call to one another, but it's also a call to those outside of the church. Look at verse 19, the second part of Jesus' call there in verse 19. Follow me, he says, and I will make you fishers of men. The promise to these fishermen is that instead of drawing in nets of fish, they will be about gathering people. And that's actually what happens as their lives are changed by this. But there's two things under this that I want you to see. The first is I want you to know that Jesus is committed to changing you. Jesus is saying to his disciples, I will make this of you. I am committed to shaping your life so that you as a congregation, so that you as a church, so that you as my people would take my message somewhere from where it is not yet. But also know that Jesus is committed to changing others. Because He's committed to to making us fishers of men. To taking His church, His people, and saying, I want to gather more and more people, not not for numbers' sake, not for status or influence sake, but because this is this is what I do, he's saying to us. This is what I care about. And he is going to use us to shape and change others. He's committed to changing us, and he's committed to changing others. Think about among his final words on this earth in Matthew 28. He says to, to these disciples gathered, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. He's saying, I'm going to change you so that this is what you do and others will be changed. In Luke 24, he says, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and that on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. The trajectory of the Gospel message is global, worldwide, even to places like Lee Summit, Missouri. That the Gospel is going forth to shape us and to shape the people of God. It never stops with us. Inherent to changing your life is the work of changing others' lives too. I've read that uh, one of the founding fathers, John Adams, was a man of many words. That he loved to talk and speculate and think through philosophical ideas and political ideas. As one of the founding fathers, he was a perfect thing because this is what they needed to do to figure out what this country was going to look like. But at one point... uh, early in the process of being involved in the founding of our country, his wife Abigail wrote these words to him in a letter. She said, You cannot be, I know, nor do I wish to see you an inactive spectator. We have too many high-sounding words and too few actions that correspond with them. What Jesus is saying to us is He doesn't want us to be inactive spectators. People who talk about doctrine in the right ways and it stops there. What He's after in us is that the glory and the beauty of of the truth of His Word would so transform us that His message would go out and change the world. That's what He's committed to. He calls us to others. Do we resist that change? Are there ways in which we work against that change happening in our lives? Are there ways in which we resist Jesus' commitment to those who are not here yet? It's worth it for us to think about do we make it difficult for people to come to church here? And, and please hear me. 
every time I've been here, I've been warmly greeted. I, I don't mean this critically of anybody, but it's something that we always need to ask ourselves. Are we getting in the way of people coming to worship? Are we making it more difficult? Or are we living within, within knowledge that says, there may be people who walk through the doors that don't understand our jokes because they're brand new to the faith. Let's be aware of that. Let's be aware of how we speak and what we value. And, and let's reach out. Let's be aware of what Jesus is doing. It's worth it for us to give thought to this. It's worth it for us to, to wrestle with what does it look like for us to be aware? And, and let me also say this. I'm speak, I, want to speak, I want these words to hit you as a congregation, to us as a people, not specifically individually necessarily. What I mean by that is this. Some of you are built that you could talk to a tree if you were by yourself next to a tree and you were happy. You could talk to anybody. You can strike up a conversation with anybody. And others of you like to, to, to approach a stranger and to talk about like the weather, much less your faith. Like your heart is like racing right now even just thinking about that thought. The point here is this. This is why Jesus calls us together to this. So the people who are outgoing, who love having conversations with new people, who love getting to know strangers, can do that freely and then move on to the next stranger because they get bored with that conversation because some of you are like that. And that's okay. And others of us are, are maybe more background people. Or others of us you know, think about things like, i got to make sure there's toilet paper in the bathroom stocked and there's soap in the soap dispensers and that the church is unlocked and the temperature is right. Those things matter. Those of you who, who are good at that and who, don't, who think about those things, thank you. And everything in between, this call is for us to do this together, is what Jesus is inviting us to consider. This is how he's at work. So what is Jesus' call to you? What is his call to us? Jesus calls us where we are in daily life to be with him. Jesus calls us to be with each other, to, to those like us and to those unlike us. Jesus promises at, that his commitment, his commitment is to changing us so that through us he might change others. That's, that's where we are, y'all. I want to close with, with one more thought here, and it's this. We need to acknowledge our weaknesses in this, y'all. We need to be aware of that, that we're not going to do this perfectly, and that's okay. On the 10th of September, 1813, after defeating the British fleet in the Battle, Battle, Battle of Lake Erie, Oliver Hazard Perry, commander of the American fleet, dispatched one of the most famous messages in military history to Major General William Henry Harrison, and it read this, Dear General, we have met the enemy in the it, and they are ours. Two ships, two brigs, one schooner, and one sloop. Yours with great respect and esteem, H. Perry. We have met the enemy, and the enemy is ours. In 1970, a cartoonist, named Walt Kelly, famously paraphrased this statement in, a, in an Earth Day poster and wrote these words, We have met the enemy, and he is us. Not he is ours. We have met the enemy, and he is us. And I simply want to close by saying this. The church is going to grow in spite of you. Because this is what Jesus is committed to. Jesus is still winning. I don't say this to guilt or shame anybody. I actually wanted to encourage you to know that, that as, as we seek to follow Jesus personally, as individuals, as families, as a church, we will get things wrong. We will be part of the problem. And yet Jesus is always the solution. It doesn't bank on your faithfulness. The spread of the Gospel 
does not rest on your shoulders whether it's going to be successful or not. It will be successful because this is what Jesus is doing. And what He's doing is He's inviting us to be a part of this, even in the midst of our mess, in the midst of our awkwardness, in the midst of our failure. Jesus' call to us as our King is to follow Him because He's at work. We pray. Gracious, merciful God, it's, it's astounding to me that you would, you would send Jesus here and that You would call us to be a part of spreading Your glory. And that You would call us to be a part of, of you, Your beauty and truth and goodness being on display. Because we fall short daily. And yet I pray for us that we would know that in the midst of that, You are ever faithful. You are ever strong. You are ever powerful. You are at work. Remind us of this, Father, we ask. In Your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.